Today I'm starting a summer sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul tells us about in his letter to the churches of Galatia. This is chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves for one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. The works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will never inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Paul's letter to the Galatians might be the most important document in the history of the Christian church, especially for the Protestant portion of the church, and it deserves our attention. But I have to be short today, so we'll look at the letter to the Galatians as a whole in weeks to come. Today I just want to zero in on that brief passage I read just a moment ago. Rather late, in a fairly brief, efficient correspondence, Paul wants to distinguish between the works of the flesh, what life looks like when we're left to our own devices, and the fruit of the Spirit, what life looks like under the sway of God's Spirit, God's Ruach, God's breath, God's gale. The works of the flesh, says Paul, are fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, quarrels, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's a vivid and colorful list, a long list, 15 fleshly works in all. And when Paul's finished with it, he's not even finished. He ends his laundry list with, and things like these, etc., etc., and so on and so forth. I don't even have time to talk about all the squalid things we're capable of when we're left to our own devices, says Paul. And when he's exhausted himself with this laundry list of fleshly works, Paul shifts into another gear. On the other hand, he says, on the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, and self-control. Well, the first thing to notice about this list, the second list, is that it's shorter than the other one. Nine fruits of the Spirit as opposed to 15 works of the flesh. And when Paul's finished, he's finished. He thinks of it as a comprehensive, exhaustive list. He doesn't put, and things like these, at the end of this shorter list. But it's apparently all we need. The fruit of the Spirit. 
The second thing to notice is that the fruit of the Spirit is just that, fruit, not fruits. It's singular. It's a curious sentence, isn't it? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. The subject is singular, but the predicate is plural. The fruit of the Spirit is just one thing, but it has nine aspects. If you live in God's Spirit, you can't pick the list apart. You can't love without being kind, and you can't be kind without being generous and patient. It's all or nothing. And so in weeks to come, I'll think with you about why this metaphor of fruit of the Spirit is fitting to get Paul's point across. But sometimes I like to set up parallel metaphors to enliven my own sometimes dormant imagination. So I'm going to be referring to these nine virtues as the facets of faithfulness. Nine aspects of a single gemstone. One beautiful thing in a Christian life with nine sides. So the list is short, it's singular, and the third thing to notice is what comes first, right? This shouldn't surprise us. This is the same apostle who told us, if I speak with the tongues of mortals and of angels, if I can predict the future, if I know everything there is to be known but have not love, I am nothing. Now three things abide, faith and hope and love, and the greatest of these, that's this very same apostle. For this author, love is and always will be the first thing that crosses his mind. Love will be the prima inter pares, the first among equals, among these nine facets. Every other facet will be just a, a specific kind and a pale shadow of love. But to understand why love is the cardinal virtue for Paul, we have to know what he understands when he uses the word. Because love means many things to many people, right? You can make love, but that's just a euphemism for an earthy verb we'd rather not speak. I know a woman who loves Beethoven's seventh. I know another woman who loves the Bee Gees. Hard to believe, but true. <laughs> I love Van Gogh's Starry Night because of the beautiful thing it does to my soul. I love Glacier Point in Yosemite because it might be the most stunning vista in the world. I love Michigan football, but not so much lately. <laughs> but that's not what Paul's talking about here. The Swedish Lutheran theologian Anders Nygren distinguishes between a value-recognizing kind of love and a value-creating kind of love. Do you understand what he's getting at when he makes that distinction? With a value-recognizing kind of love, all the value, all the worth resides in the beloved, in your lover, in the painting, in the landscape. Do you remember how you felt when you first spied your future spouse across a crowded room at the college party or across the table at Starbucks, courtesy of OK Cupid. That's a value-recognizing kind of love. You recognize the value in your future partner. And it's a good thing, but it's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a value-creating kind of love. This kind of love doesn't find value, it makes value. I love the way Marilyn Robinson puts it in her novel, Gilead. Love is holy, she writes. Love is holy because it is like grace. 
the worthiness of its object is never what really matters. Yes? I know a man who spent every day at home with his wife for 35 years because most days she couldn't get out of bed because of the crippling arthritis that took her body and the even more crippling depression that afflicted her soul. He had to quit his job and he never went back. She didn't have so much as a smile or a kind word to give him in return. But he was there every single day for 35 years. I know another woman who spent day after day, year after year, sitting through long, meaningless conversations with her Alzheimer's-beset husband until the disease finally took him from her in the end. It was never easy, but it was never a question either. She was there all the while and walked with him to the lip of a grave. Love is holy because it is like grace. The worthiness of its object is never what really matters. Tomorrow is Memorial Day, of course. When we pause to remember that freedom isn't free. It's purchased with blood and sacrifice. Also, this coming June 6, 2019, 11 days from now, is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Some of those guys who stormed the beaches at Omaha 75 years ago are still alive. Just a few. They're 95 years old. This is the last significant anniversary they will witness. In the next 10 years, the Tribune will publish a story about the last living World War II veteran. And so to live into those two experiences, I found my well-worn copy of Alex Kershaw's book, The Bedford Boys. Have you read The Bedford Boys about Bedford, Virginia, a village of 3,000 people which sent 37 young men to Omaha Beach? They spearheaded the invasion of the 37 young men from Bedford, Virginia that went to Normandy. 22 didn't come back. They lost their lives on the beach or on the way to Paris. Three weeks before D-Day, June 6, the Bedford boys, along with two million others, were sent to containment camps in England to await the invasion, the largest deployment in the history of warfare. The operation was so secretive that no passes were issued for any reason. Barbed wire encircled the camp. Armed, guard would sh armed guards would shoot anybody who th tried to leave. Everyone was sealed off from the outside. Even the letters were censored. And John Nance, one of the Bedford boys, tells this story. He says, it was my turn to read the boys' letters back home to watch for any leaks. And once I came upon a suspicious looking letter with illegible words scrawled all over the page, repeated over and over. It looked like some kind of code which we'd been trained to look out for. And so Lieutenant Nance summons the private who wrote the letter to his office. This doesn't make any sense, he said to the private. What does it mean? Why do you want to send this home? It's just gibberish. And then he got more suspicious when this private looked embarrassed and shuffled his feet and looked down at the floor and turned red. And Lieutenant Nance says, why do you want to send this home? It doesn't mean anything. And the private said to the lieutenant, he said, my wife will know what it means. The words, I love you, you see, 
were the only words he'd almost learned to write. You could do a lot worse. If it's the only thing you ever learn, it's the only thing you ever say, if it's the only thing you ever write, if it's the only thing you ever do, well, maybe that's enough. And once you get this facet of faithfulness right, you could dispense with the other eight. I won't, but you could. <laughs>